Bible to Matthew 26. Seems that we have been in Matthew 26 for quite some time. Today, the Lord willing, we're going to finish it and start yet another very long chapter in chapter 27. We're so close to the end of the gospel and yet so very far away. Matthew 26. <clears throat> this morning we begin reading in verse number 69. Read down to the end of the chapter. as We talk, uh, we consider what is uh, happening here in uh, Peter's denial of Christ. Probably a, a very familiar passage to, to you. Let us read it. Let's hear what, what it says and, and get into the preaching. Verse 69 begins, Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus. Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. There is no disciple that is more well known to the common man than Peter. Peter is known as the most outspoken of the disciples. He is also known as the most impetuous of the disciples. Sometimes Peter is, is uh, characterized by acting and then thinking. Remember when Jesus walked to the disciples on the water? They were in the middle of a storm, and they thought they were going to die. They saw Jesus. They thought it was a ghost, and Jesus said, It's I. Don't be afraid. It was only Peter who decided to jump out of the boat and walk on the water. He did sink pretty quickly, but as my dad likes to say, he still holds the water-walking record today. Peter was also in the inner circle of Jesus, Peter, James, and John. And as such, he was witness to uh, a, a lot of things that only a few people ever really got to see. Only Peter, James, and John witnessed Jesus' glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. In, uh, in, in the city where Jairus lived, when he had come to Jesus and asked Jesus to come and heal his daughter, if you read through that story, uh, Jairus and, and his family uh, and, and Peter and James and John were the only ones allowed in to actually see the resurrection of the little girl. All others had been removed from the house. Even the other, of the other 11 apostles, uh, some of them are barely mentioned. In the New Testament, if I were to give you a quiz and ask you just simply name all 12 apostles, uh, it might be difficult to get some of those last few uh, written down. But Peter would probably be on the top of the list. But along with the fame of being 
a familiar character in the Scripture comes repeated mention of all of his failures as a disciple. This text before us is, a, I think, a familiar story to us. It's a fulfillment of what Jesus had spoke about earlier in verse 34 when Jesus said, you're all going to fall away. And Peter said, I will not fall away. And Jesus said, you'll deny me three times. And this is a fulfillment of that. What we find here in this text is that despite his good intentions and his earlier heroics, Peter buckled under the pressure and denied even knowing Jesus. I want you to notice about this section that it doesn't end well. We know the story. We know how it goes. But if we're just reading through this, it doesn't end well. There's no hint at the end of chapter 26 or even at the beginning of chapter 27 that it gets better from here. If you were a first-time reader, reading Matthew for the very first time, and you didn't know how this story was supposed to end, you would be left wondering at this point, does Peter ever repent? Will he fall away forever? Is Peter no different than Judas? We're just not told. The story doesn't end well. Now, Peter has been a key figure in the Gospel of Matthew since almost the very beginning. The first time he was mentioned was in chapter 4 when Jesus called him to be a disciple and to follow him. And Peter is mentioned specifically by name 23 times in the Gospel of Matthew. In a story where Jesus is the central figure, Peter plays a key supporting role. But actually, this is the very last time that Peter will be mentioned in Matthew. What we find here is that this last appearance casts a shadow on Peter that Matthew does not lift. We have to look to the other Gospels to find what may have happened to this man. And in the middle of a saga of Jesus' arrest and persecution and, and conviction and crucifixion, Matthew, for a few verses, turns the spotlight on Peter. And here's what I want you to see as we're considering this passage. That while Jesus is on trial inside Caiaphas' house, standing before the high priest, standing before the council, Peter is outside in the courtyard on trial himself. It's a lesser trial to be sure, but Peter is on trial in a, in a sort. And Peter fails miserably. And we need to settle into this uneasiness. It's, a, it's an uncomfortable passage to read about. But we need to settle into this story to see what it is that it's doing here. Peter didn't plan to fail. But he did. He had every intention of standing firm for Jesus. But he buckled under the pressure. We need to consider this text and its implications because we're not that different. Maybe you have never denied Christ in the way that Peter did, but I wonder if you would answer the question honestly, have you ever failed Jesus? Have you ever said something or done something that contradicted your profession of faith? The follower of Christ? Have you ever 
tried to distance yourself from Jesus through words or actions because of the pressure of the crowd? You ever tried to hide your identity as a Christian on the job or in the community? If we're honest, we've all done this at one time or another. And if we're really honest, it happens far more than we care to admit. Like Peter, we don't plan to fail Christ. I think, think that would be your testimony. We never plan to sin. We never plan to fail Christ. We never plan to deny Him by word or action, but we sometimes do. Maybe we have good intentions, and I want to believe that this crowd does. But good intentions don't support us in the moment, do they? When the pressure is on, what we do matters, not what we meant to do or what we hope we will do. As we consider Peter's failure this morning, we must acknowledge our own tendency to fail Christ and ask the question, what now? So let's look at this text, and I want you to first consider as we we're, we're, we're thinking a little bit outside of this text to really capture the, the, the significance of these verses. First, let's consider Peter's intentions. Peter planned to succeed all along. From the very beginning, he had determined to stand tall, to stand up for Jesus. Back in verse 33, he boldly declared to Jesus, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. When Jesus said, well, Peter, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times, he even argued that and said in verse 35, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. He's confident. He's committed. He's convinced of his own loyalty to Christ that he is willing to argue with the Son of God about it. He's confident. He's assured of his loyalty. And you know what? We would expect nothing less. Isn't that what we want from people like Peter? From ourselves? From each other? Don't we expect people to have that kind of expectation of themselves? I don't plan to deny Christ. I hope that if we were to ask each of us this morning, say, is anybody planning to walk out of here and deny Christ? I hope that every single one of us would say, no way. Jose. Right? Because that's how we talk. Uh, We would not plan to do it. But some of us did last week. One way or another. And some of us will this week. Maybe even before this day is over, we will fail Christ. We want to believe that if it ever came down to it, we'd be willing to die for Jesus. And if only intentions were what mattered, Peter would have never failed here because he had very good intentions. But he did fail. I also want to consider the number of times that Peter previously succeeded. 
Think about these, these times for a moment. In Matthew 16, you can write these down and look at them a little bit later, but I'm sure you're familiar with them. In Matthew 16, it was Peter who made the confession, the great confession, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That was Peter's words. And Jesus commended Peter for saying this. And he said, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Peter did not come up with this knowledge on his own. Rather, God had given him the knowledge of who Jesus is. And though other people got it wrong, Peter knew who Jesus is. In John chapter 6, after a series of hard teachings from Jesus, many of the people who were following Him turned away. Jesus asked the disciples, do you want to go away as well? And it was Peter who said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Peter believed and knew who Jesus is, that He is the Holy One, that He is the Messiah, that He is God in flesh. Most recently in the garden, back in verse 51, just a few hours from our our scene in verse 69, Peter is the one who grabbed his sword and started fighting to defend Jesus from the mob. Peter was not just privately loyal or just in word only. No, publicly and with action, Peter displayed his loyalty and his love to Christ. Often proving himself as loyal, though at times misguided, and a friend to Jesus. But here, in the courtyard, Peter's resolve fails him. His good intentions are not good enough. His courage vanishes and is replaced with fear. His boldness is gone. In the courtyard, Peter stands trial, if you will. Inside, Jesus doesn't cower to the pressure and to the intimidation of the priests. He does not deny God, nor does he deny himself. But outside, Peter fails miserably and denies Christ three times. Notice in the text here that Peter was in the minority. Now, this is not the only reason or even the main reason why Peter denied Jesus, but I do think it's helpful to at least recognize the fact that he was in the minority. However, Peter had been faithful to Jesus before when he was in the minority. In John 6, when many people left, Peter stayed. In uh, in, in the garden, more people came to arrest Jesus than were there to defend Him, but Peter's the one who pulled out his sword. Peter was used to being in the smaller crowd that supported Christ. But I have to think that if everyone in the crowd had been there to stand vigil, to support Jesus in His hour of need, that Peter might have acted differently. But he didn't. I find it's easy to raise our hands in praising God when others are doing the same thing. But it's far different when we're outnumbered. It's sometimes difficult to even whisper when the voices around us are hostile and averse to Christ. 
I think that this is how Peter felt. He felt that he was outnumbered by the enemies of Christ. Being in the minority was not the only reason, but it certainly was a factor that played into Peter's failure. Notice or consider that Peter failed when he should have succeeded. He should have. He could have. He could have stood with Christ. There's no excuse for what he did. His pressure was far less than the pressure that Jesus was going through just a few feet away. Jesus was being interrogated by men with clear intentions of doing Him harm. They wanted reason to kill Him. Peter is being interrogated by a little girl. Not by a high priest. Not by someone with authority and power to hurt Him. Notice in verse 69, it's a girl, a servant girl, who just simply asked the question, you were with Jesus, right? You're one of them. You're with him. Peter says in verse 70, I don't know what you're talking about. He cowers. He caves in to the pressure. He withdraws to the gate. He moves further away from, there was a fire. There, he moves further into the shadows by the gate and is hiding there. Maybe Peter thinks that he needs to not be seen and recognized. Maybe he thinks that he could be arrested too. But there, another girl asks him in verse 71, this, or not asked him, but just declares about him, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. It's true. Peter could not admit to the truthful accusation of this young girl. Instead, he says, I don't know the man. And this time, he adds an oath. This means that he swears, probably by God's name, that he does not know the Son of God. He is basing his truthfulness on something that is holy and sacred. Contrast that with Jesus inside, who had also been put under oath. and He spoke the truth. But Peter lied and denied his Lord. Finally, I want to point out that what I think we have here is a perceived threat, not an actual threat. There's nothing specific in the text, in Matthew at least, that says that Peter is in danger here. In fact, if you go and read the other Gospel accounts, particularly John 18, there was another disciple who was there that night in the garden. He was known by the high priest. That's how he got in. And it was this other disciple that is likely John that got Peter into the courtyard to begin with. There were no actual threats made to Peter. Maybe there was disdain. Maybe there was some, some looking down on him for being a Galilean or maybe even a follower of Jesus. But there was no expressed danger. But in verse 73, the bystanders... Say, certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. It's true. Peter was a Galilean, just like Jesus, just like almost all the other disciples. And Galileans had a unique accent that would have been distinguishable from the people in Jerusalem. But it was Passover. Everybody was in Jerusalem at Passover. It was not unusual for Galileans to be there. So the fact that he sounded different 
So did everybody else at the time. Everybody from all over had gathered in Jerusalem at the time. Why does Peter feel threatened? Need to turn the focus away from himself. Why does he do it this way? Peter repeats his denial in verse number 74 and now adds a curse. Now there's some ambiguity with this little phrase, he began to invoke a curse on himself. This is how the ESV translates it. It's actually, this whole phrase is one little word. And it's the only time that this word is used like this in the whole New Testament. So the ESV uses it because of how it's used outside of Scripture, uh, sometimes to, uh, to, to, to be a curse on himself, may God strike me dead if I know this man, and that sort, of, that sort of thing. But other English translations, your Bible might even say simply, he cursed and swore. Kind of leaves it open as to the object of his curse. Some say that, Jesus, that Peter is cursing the crowd for calling him one of them. Some even say that, G, that Peter is cursing Jesus to try to distance himself even further from him. Either way, if he's cursing himself or Christ or anyone else, this is a horrible thing and not the way that Peter imagined this night would go. I'll bet if you had told him that this is where he would be tonight, and this is what he would be doing and saying, he would have denied it and argued with you just like he did when Jesus told him. And immediately, the rooster crows, and Peter remembers Jesus' words. He had done the unimaginable. He had committed an unthinkable sin. He never thought he'd end up here. The fact that he runs out weeping bitterly shows us that he was devastated. He was humiliated by his failure. And this is the last time that we read about Peter by name in Matthew. What a horrible, disappointing way to end. And yet, I think the feeling is all too familiar. You might not know what it's like to betray Christ or to deny Jesus with the words and curses that Peter made. But I wonder if you can relate to the grief that Peter has as he realized he has betrayed the Lord with his words. Do you understand the feeling that comes after you've buckled under the pressures of this world or yielded to the temptations to sin? To be sure, Peter's weakness is our own. The truth is, we fail just like Peter did. Now, mercifully, our sins are not recorded in Scripture for people from every generation since to read and talk about like we are about Peter. But the shame and the regret of our sin can be just as real we sometimes fail to stand up for Jesus. Maybe when we're not in the majority. Maybe when the pressure overwhelms us. Sometimes we fail when we should have succeeded. Sometimes we fail in, in temptations that were far less than at other times that we had gotten victory. 
we look and say, how did this trip me up? I, I've, I've battled harder temptations than this one and succeeded. What happened here? We plan to succeed. We plan to stay faithful and loyal. We're determined, committed, and yet here we are again. Do you know that feeling? I'm sure you do. I do. And so did the Apostle Paul. He wrote in Romans chapter 7, I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Paul goes on to call himself a wretched man. You can almost, as you read it, see Paul throw up his hands in frustration and ask, frustrated cry, who will deliver me from this body of death? And the answer comes immediately, not only for Paul, but for us. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus is the answer to our wretchedness. He is the solution to our weakness. Because while Peter was outside in the courtyard denying Christ, Jesus was inside being faithful to fulfill the Father's plan. While Peter buckled under the pressure of his peers, Jesus remained faithful and submissive the whole time. We're not excusing Peter for his sin. Or we're not looking to excuse ourselves for our sin. But the answer is not to beat ourselves up every time we fail. We're good at that. And we think that somehow that makes up for it. It's called penance. It's not scriptural. What is the solution? Well, instead of despair and hopelessness, we look to Christ. John wrote about it in 1 John chapter 2. He says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. In all of chapter 1, he's been talking about don't sin. And if you have sin, you need to confess your sin. You shouldn't sin. If you call yourself, uh, say you're not a sinner, you're making God a liar. Don't sin, don't sin. And then he begins chapter 2 by saying, I'm telling you all this so that you won't sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. In other words, you're not supposed to sin. But if you do, when you do, there's hope. There is Jesus. Jesus is our advocate. It means that He intercedes on our behalf. He is our mediator with the Father. He is our propitiation which means that He is the sacrifice that takes away God's wrath. What Jesus did completely satisfies justice and God's wrath. His sinless life and His substitutionary death are propitiation for our sins. By His sacrifice, He has removed the stain of sin 
and the guilt of sin and washed us white as snow. You still sin. But Jesus has removed the guilt. None of us plan to fail Christ. But like Peter, each of us will fail. Maybe it's a subtle distancing from your Christian confession at work. You get around certain people. Maybe your failure is just simply not reflecting Christ to your wife or to your husband or to your children. Maybe your failure this week is that you looked at things you have no business looking at. Maybe you failed despite your good intentions and you gossiped or you lost your temper or you said some things you shouldn't have said. Maybe nobody else knows about your failure but you and God. Does it grieve you? Does that bother you that you sinned yet again? First, I want you to recognize that you don't have to fail. You're not a slave to sin anymore. Romans tells us that Christ has freed us from sin and we have died to it. We are no longer enslaved to our sin, meaning we don't have to sin. I was reminded this week of a, of a song uh, that we sang a lot when I was growing up in, in church, a Yield Not to Temptation, For Yielding is Sin. Each victory will help you some other to win. Fight manfully onward. Dark passions subdue. Look ever to Jesus. He will carry you through. Ask the Savior to help you. Comfort, strengthen, and keep you. He is willing to aid you. He will carry you through. Scriptures tell us in 1 Corinthians 10 that let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. There has no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. You don't have to sin. There is no excuse. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but... If anyone does, when you fail, when you fall, when you sin, look to Christ. Trust in His perfect work on your behalf. Yes, you lost your temper. Look to Christ. Yes, you looked at things you shouldn't have looked at and you dwelt on images that you shouldn't be doing. You've done things with your hands and your feet or said things with your mouth that you shouldn't have said. Now what? Look to Christ. Trust in His work on your behalf. If you want to look at it later on, I'll tell you that this is not going to be the last failure in Peter's life. It's not the last time he does something similar to this. In Galatians chapter 2, Peter once again gave in to the peer pressure and distanced himself from Christ's people by removing himself from Gentile Christians when Jews were around. It's the same fear of man that caused him to fail to stand with Christ's people out of fear of other people. But Peter was an apostle. 
Peter was a leader in the church, and he failed again? Yeah, just like we will, just like we do. Friend, good intentions are not good enough. They will not save you. But you do have Christ, and Christ is enough. He is our mediating advocate. He is our satisfying sacrifice. So determine to stand for Christ. Make the decision. You're going to be loyal and faithful to Christ. We ought to have that, that, that endeavor, that commitment in our mind and ask for the Spirit's help. But when you fail, and you will fail, And when you yield to the sin that remains in you and you cry out, what a wretched man or woman or boy or girl that I am, look ever to Jesus. He will carry you through. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you for giving us a faithful Christ, a perfect substitute. In Jesus. Though we have failed, Jesus has never failed. We ask you to help us today to live in loyalty to our Savior. We ask that you would help us to live in unison with our profession. May our lives back up our speech. This week, Father, make our words and our actions honor Christ. And as we fail, cause us to look to Jesus, our advocate. It's in his name that we pray.